Alrighty. Uh, you can open your Bibles if you want to, to 2 Kings 24. We also have a, a verse packet that is going to cover most of the, all the passages that we'll be talking about um, there, so you, you have that as well on your packet that you hopefully got when you came in. Um, I want to take just a minute to, to first brief you on what we're going to do, both tonight and then in the next few weeks, and then um, catch you up on where we've been, what we've been talking about, just so that we're all on the same page. Um, tonight, we're going to get all the way, we're going to get the Jews captured, all right? We're going to get them all the way to captivity, where they get hauled off into to Babylon, if all goes according to plan. And we're going to leave them there for, for a period of time. Uh, we're we're going to spend the next... My plan is like 12 weeks, and it may be a little bit longer than that, just depending. Uh, going through uh, kind of a separate little standalone study of what we are as a church, what a church should be, biblically speaking. Um, this is a kind of a modified version of a building block that I did last quarter, and it's really going to pertain to us as, as EBC. Um, what does it mean to be Baptist? What does it mean to be Southern Baptist on top of that? Uh, what do all those things, how do they pertain to us? What, what does church structure even look like, and, and how, where do we get that biblically? Um, we're going to go through about 12 weeks of that, who we are as a church. And I think, uh, hopefully, it will be helpful to kind of put pieces together on what God has actually established in the church. Um, so, that's going to begin next week, and that will be for the next, uh, that'll probably take us up somewhere around, I don't know, April or so given some breaks, obviously, that'll probably be in there for, for one reason or another. Um, and then we'll resume with a study of the prophets that are prophesying during this time when Israel's getting ready to go into Babylon. So, timeline of events, we're getting them into Babylon, and then we're going to kind of take just a step back once we get back to the study and talk about all the prophets that are prophesying and giving them warning so that we can take those prophets and put them in their context. Which helps us to understand what we've been doing over the last uh, several years, actually, as we've been looking at the history of Israel in the Old Testament. If you'll take a look at your, your packet just as a refresher, I want you to remember what's on the uh, last page here, on page 7 of 7, you'll see there. Um, you've got a list of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, and so, you know, back in... in 931 Solomon dies and leaves the throne to his son Jeroboam and, or sorry his son Rehoboam and immediately the Lord divides the kingdom for the sins of Solomon and so we've got the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south and so you've got two separate kingdoms set up one is considered to be a legitimate kingdom that's the kingdom of north or south south that was so loud and resounding, I had no doubt, uh, you, you absolutely put a no-doubter on that. And, uh, so, the kingdom of the south is considered to be the legitimate kingdom. That's the one where the line of David continues. That is made up of both Judah and Benjamin. That also has the city of Jerusalem in it, that's where the center of worship is. All of those things are there in the south in Judah. That's over on the right-hand side of that chart. On the left-hand side is what's considered to be the illegitimate kingdom or the product of the sins of the southern kings, namely Solomon. Uh, the kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom is set up with Jeroboam I starting off as the king in the north. 
And basically, as you read down that list, there's not a king on that list that was awesome. Every single one of them led the nation into idolatry and further idolatry and wickedness. And it started with Jeroboam 1. In fact, as you read through 2 Kings, you see nothing but God saying, and he followed after his father Jeroboam the first, and he led them to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, da 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 right? So basically all the kings kind of followed after the pattern of their great-great-granddaddy Jeroboam 1 and led the northern kingdom into wickedness. Not only that, the northern kings also set up different places of worship. And that the design was to stop people from going from the northern kingdom into the south to worship there in Jerusalem. And so, and then, and then coming back, they assumed that if they went down into the south, then they would just kind of submit to the king down there and they wouldn't come back. Or when they came back, they'd be very southern and they wouldn't be properly northern. And so what happened, though, over time, obviously, the northern kingdom, because it's being led into idolatry, God tells them time and again, you're going to be judged. And so you see on the, the second to left or leftmost column, you see uh, the prophets of the north that God sent obviously starting with Elijah and Elisha. There's, uh, there's a, tons more prophets than that, but these are the most, most of the ones that were at least notable or wrote. And so Elijah, Elisha kind of kick things off, and then you get uh, Amos, Jonah, who's going to Assyria, and Hosea, who are all prophesying during that time going into the ultimate time of captivity. So what, the way God decides to judge the northern kingdom is he's t he tells them, I'm going to raise up a kingdom in Assyria out here to the east. They're going to come in, they're going to conquer you and haul you off. And in 722, that's exactly what they do. So the northern kingdom lasts from 931 to 722. So if you're trying to pin dates in your mind, do not try to memorize all the kings and all the dates on here. That's what you have these handy-dandy little charts for, all right? What you memorize are the big dates, all right? 931, kingdom splits. 722, northern kingdom is hauled off into slavery and captivity by Assyria. A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, -S -S Assyria. Well, then you've got just the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, that are left, as their northern counterparts are sort of a prophecy in and of themselves to the southern kingdom. Do you see what God just did to the northern kingdom? Do you think that that won't happen to you? Well, there's a sense in the, southern king, in the southern kingdom that, yeah, that won't happen to us because, well, we have the king who is of the line of David on the throne, and God has made a promise to us. Well, it does happen to them, and that happens in 586, which is what we're getting to. But where we left off last time was, let's, let's just talk, visit a couple of these things. You can kind of, just kind of, Keep that little back page handy, but uh, as, I as I review here, and you can see the review on the, on the screen in front of you. You don't have to turn there in your packet. Just look at those, those kings that are lined up there. Josiah was the last of the righteous kings in, in Judah, really. Um, and, and he kind of is born almost out of a, in a vacuum of God's grace to the southern kingdom. Josiah uh, came from, really, a, a line of people that were, at the very least, sketchy, going all the way back to Manasseh, who was downright evil at first before he finally repents. Manasseh's so evil, he takes his own son out there and sacrifices him in the Valley of Hinnom and burns him to death. And so, obviously, he's taken off into captivity. Well, he repents, and the Lord restores him back to the throne in Judah. Well, Josiah then comes along after Ammon, his dad, who is completely wicked. Josiah is born and is, is actually has a heart for the Lord. 
and actually desires to lead the nation in righteousness. And it seems out of nowhere, Josiah, uh, just by the grace of the Lord, uh, decides to, to do this. And, and in the midst of renovating the temple and doing what his father failed to do, they find the book of the law. And they begin to read it. And Josiah is driven to tears by it. And he, he's convicted by the word of God, simply just the word of God read. Not even preached, just read. He's convicted by it, moved to tears by it, realizes what they're not doing, brings all the elders of the nation together and says, look, y'all, here's what the word actually says. This is what we've got to do. Do you all agree with me? And all the elders of the kingdom seem to say, yeah, let's lead our people to do exactly this. And so they do. They started off with a Passover feast where rich and poor alike are invited to participate and not just invited to participate, provided to participate. So it's one thing to invite the poor. It's another thing to actually, for the king, to give up thousands of his own cattle to, to the benefit of the poor to be used in this Passover feast. And, and Josiah does that along with many others. They give up their own possessions so that everybody in Israel, in Judah, I should say, can participate. So that seems to be a positive thing. And we look at the people turning a corner and repenting, and we think, okay, Lord, surely you're going to be moved by this, and perhaps stave off the judgment that you promised that you would deliver, as we've seen him do so many times. But with all of this that's going on, what we find out is that the, the, the commitment is actually pretty shallow, and it's not enough to stave off the judgment of the Lord. Um, from the divine viewpoint, both the, repent, uh, the repentance and the actions and the, the following of the Passover feast and all of those things that they committed to do were only surface level. They were only superficial. They didn't actually penetrate deep down. And the way that we see that is as soon as Josiah dies, within weeks, Judah is already back to worshiping idols. So it seems like on the surface, well, the Lord's going to be pretty harsh when he tells he tells Josiah through a prophetess, hey, I will hold off judgment for you, but it's coming on Judah, and there's nothing really that you can do about it. And it sounds a little harsh at first, but then you see, and especially when you see the, the hearts of the people turn, but you have to understand they've been given up to the depravity of their mind, and they cannot conceive of doing anything other than worshiping idols. That's it. Um, and there's a lot of parallels there that we'll get to tonight between what's happening in Judah and potentially what might be happening even in our own country. Um, but we'll save that for, for then. Well, after the death of Josiah, obviously the nation turns to evil and God decides, God, God brings in judgment to Judah. He had long since decided, but, but he uh, finally commences the judgment. And I, what I want you to see, and just kind of fix this into your mind, Northern Kingdom, 722, hauled off into Assyria. Assyria is gone. Babylon has taken over in the east. Now Babylon's coming into the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is judged in really three campaigns. So it's not just a one fell swoop like it is in the northern kingdom. It's three campaigns. The first one starts in 605. Nebuchadnezzar comes in and... Uh, goes to war with Judah and wins. Then there's a second that comes in 597. And what, what happens after Josiah, and you'll see this on your, on your king list there 
is you got Josiah dying in 609, and then Jehoahaz takes over in 609, and you notice he's got no dash after the 609, which is never a good thing if you're a king, and you ain't got no dash. You want a dash, all right? He's got no dash, so that means he was in office for just a precious few months. Jehoiakim takes over, and he's there for, his, he's got a dash, but he's not there for very long. He's only there till 597 when he dies. His son Jehoiakim takes over, and he ain't got no dash either, which is also pretty bad. He doesn't actually die in 597. He's deposed in 597 by Nebuchadnezzar and hauled off into captivity, which we're going to see tonight. Um, so the second phase happens 597. So we got 605, next one 597, and then we're going to go all the way to 586 where we're going to see the third wave coming in tonight. So uh, let's take a look at this. Um, so after replacing his father uh, on the throne of David, Jehoiakim picks up this anti-Babylonian posture, which is not really smart, and it's part of the reason he's got no dash, right? You know, obviously, uh, Babylon takes care of daddy. That tends to not make you too happy about Babylon. And um, it, this it's, I think the politics of, this, of the day are always really tough because for a long time we saw hey, the Jews hate uh, Assyria because they're the top dog. They're the ones that are requiring payment, tribute from Judah. And so the natural response is, let's support anybody who is not Assyrian so that we can get rid of this Assyrian power over on top of us. Well, now that Assyria is gone and Babylon's been the one to deal with them, now it's kind of, let's get rid of Babylon, right? And so then it's, but then it's kind of a mixed bag. Babylon comes in and can kill us. So do we say, okay, Babylon, we'll give you whatever you want. Yay, Babylon, wave the Babylonian flag? Or do we stand up, you know, and fix our face like, like Flint against the current of Babylon and stand against them, in which case, you're not going to have a dash after your name. So which, which would you rather have? And so it's kind of a mixed bag as to what you get from time to time with some of these kings. But certainly with Jehoiakim, in, within three months, he's already spewing anti-Babylonian hatred against Babylon. And this becomes pretty evident because after three months, uh, Jehoiakim found his city besieged by Babylonians who were coming quickly to take care of him. Look at 2 Kings 24, 10 to 17. <clears throat> Is there a bottle of water up here? Um. 2 Kings 24, 10 to 17. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, that's the eighth year of, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces. Thank you, Robert. Cut in, uh, cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, and as the Lord had foretold, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, ten thousand captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained, 
except the poorest people of the land. And he carried away Jehoiakim to Babylon. The king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000 of all of them uh, strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. All right, this time, what's that? That's the 597 raid. Remember in the, um, in the 605 raid, we saw last time, that's Daniel and his friends. That's that first initial raid by Babylon where they capture a lot of the, the young, very young, very, uh, the, all the, all the te- tech entrepreneurs of Judah take, haul them off into captivity. And, uh, and uh, Daniel is among them. In this five ni- uh, 597 raid, uh, they come in, and this is when they take off not only the king and a lot of his officials, but you see a lot of, like, um, a lot of people that are kind of in positions of authority and power. Uh, the chief men of the land he takes into captivity. Um, he, this is actually the, the time where he brings Ezekiel into captivity as well. And what we find in, in the book of Ezekiel is that Ezekiel is in captivity when he prophesies. And, but what you notice about the book is that he is in, he is in Babylon, but he also seems to be prophesying to a group of people who are not there. And that's because he's hauled off in 597, and there's still one phase left to come that he's sort of telling is going to happen. Um, and what we'll see later on tonight is that Jeremiah is left in, back in, in Judah. And so you've got a notable prophet out east in Babylon, and you've got a notable prophet back west in, in Jerusalem. And the two are kind of both sort of aiming at the same target, more or less, right? And you can kind of sense a little bit of a difference in the way that they uh, are prophesying, and some of that has to do with where they're, they're located. So uh, the royal family is deported, along with all the leading citizens, including Ezekiel the prophet, <clears throat> and I want to show you that here in Ezekiel uh, 1, 1 to 3. Uh, basically, everybody that's w- anybody worth their salt is taken off. Look at Ezekiel 1, 1 to 3. In the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Keber Canal, the heavens, that's in, in Babylon, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Keber Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. So you see, he's in, he's in Babylon, fifth year of exile um, of King Jehoiakim. So we're looking at early 590s, just before that last invasion comes in, where Ezekiel is there and where he receives his word, a word from the Lord. Um, so. Nebuchadnezzar not only deports all the big notable officials, but he also hauls off a lot of temple, temple furniture <clears throat> and anything that was worth any money. So he takes all the temple treasures and uh, hauls them off and takes them into captivity, which 
not coincidentally, is exactly what Isaiah told Hezekiah was going to happen back in Isaiah 38. Remember, <clears throat> Isaiah told him, hey, Babylon, who you seem to think is anti-Assyrian, and you think is in your corner, they're going to be the ones that end up judging you guys. They're going to come in here and drag off all of this stuff, and that's exactly what ends up happening. All the temple treasures are gone. And so, what does Nebuchadnezzar, is he left to do? Well, <clears throat> he takes off all the people of notoriety. All of those people form what function in society? The people that are typically rich, wealthy, people that are notable, the king's right-hand men. They're all the leaders in society, right? So all that's left are not only the poor among the people, but basically, well, that's pretty much it. And so he takes out of all of the people that are left, he appoints one person as governor, as it were, and that is uh, Jehoiakim's uncle, Mataniah, and you can always tell who kind of holds the power in the situation when they take the king, put him on the throne, and then rename him. Uh, that, that tells you everything you need to know about who's in charge. You're, today, you're Zedekiah. All right, take a grown man and tell him what his new name is. Uh, but what's happening, obviously, to the people is that you've got the line of David that's happening, right? This is still within the same family, so it's still technically the line of David, uh, his uncle. But everybody in the land knows that Jehoiakim is still alive. He's hauled off into captivity and is going to be under arrest in Babylon and in jail in Babylon. They know he's still alive. So to them, who is still the king? It's still Jehoiakim. He's not been, he's, he's been deposed, but he hasn't been killed. And so as long as he's still alive, there is a sense uh, that he is still the king. In fact, we see this in Jeremiah 28. So look at Jeremiah 28, 1 to, 8, 1 to 4. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and all the people saying thus says the Lord the God of uh, uh, Lord of hosts the God of Israel I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon took away from this place and carried to Babylon I will also break, uh, bring back to this place Jeconiah the son of Jehoiakim that's Jehoiakim uh, that's the same person. Je Jeconiah and Jehoiakim are the same person. Uh, Je Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Is that true? Within two years, I'm going to bring them back? That's not true. He, the, all these people have been hauled off into captivity, and, and Jeremiah says, all right, uh, he's sitting there in the, in the temple, and here comes, uh, here comes old Hananiah, the son of Azur. They're standing there amongst all the officials. And Hananiah just says, let me tell you what's going to happen. All right? In two years, Jeconiah is going to come back here. All the exiles are going to come back here. All the property that's been destroyed it's gonna, it, and, and stolen, it's going to come back here too. Well, that sounds a little fishy. And Jeremiah tells him as much. Jeremiah actually responds to that, Amen. Let it be. I hope what you're saying is right. However, if you're not right, you're a false prophet. And it turns out he's a false prophet. He's not right. Uh, so when you, it's funny. If you were just read Jeremiah 28, 1 to 4, and you were to walk away, you might 
walk away going, what am I supposed to learn from that? You know, what spiritual truth am I to take? The spiritual truth is don't be a false prophet. And don't say you're speaking for the Lord when you're not speaking for the Lord, because that's exactly what Hananiah, it seems, is doing. Which is, and it's exactly contrary to what Jeremiah has been saying was going to happen the whole time. Jeremiah's been telling everybody, look, they're going to be hauled off. They're going to stay there for many, many, many years before finally they're going to be released. This is going to happen for your good. In fact, Jeremiah 28 comes right before Jeremiah 29. Does Jeremiah 29, particularly verse 11, ring a bell to you? Somebody probably has it hanging on their wall. Maybe even quote it. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you. And we'll talk about this when we go through Jeremiah in a number of weeks. But, um, you know, Jeremiah is telling the nation of Israel, or the nation of Judah, you're going to go into captivity, and most of you are going to die there. However, your kids and your grandkids, I'm going to bring back to the land, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a future. He's telling them, you're going to die. Go into Babylon and get comfortable there. Seek the prosperity of Babylon, because that's going to be the place where you live and where you die and where your funeral plot is going to be. However, that's not going to be the destiny forever for the Jews. There's some bigger things coming on the horizon. 500 years later, there's a massive thing coming on the horizon that is the salvation for them. And he tells them that, that this is, this is going to happen. And I'm going to do this. But, and, and my plan is to prosper you in Jesus and not to harm you. And that's ultimately what he, what he uh, is going to do. But they're going to go into captivity and they're going to die. And yet you've got all these other false prophets coming up at the same time going, nah, I give it two years before this thing turns around. And Jeremiah's like, I hope, I hope what you're saying is right. I hope I'm found to be wrong. But if you're wrong, we need to kill you. Um, the same place they come from now. You know? Um, yeah. I mean, we're... So, Jeremiah has, has this kind of refrain, and we're, we're going to read one of them tonight. Do we? Maybe we don't. Um, where people say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Uh, we see this throughout the, the uh, Old Testament. In fact, I'll just read it. Uh, this follows right after what Hananiah just said. It, it comes in Jeremiah 28. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah, the prophet, in the presence of the priests and all the people. Uh, who were standing in the house of the Lord, and the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen, may the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. Yet hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. As for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. So he's, he's basically saying, the one that comes saying peace, when everybody else has said war, well, let's just wait and see. Because one of you, you both can't be telling the truth. 
And, and um, yeah, so I, well, I could, I could get on a soapbox, I'm not going to do that right now, but, but, but yeah, I mean, the, uh, where, when it comes to these false prophets, it, it's, the same, it's the same thing that we see now when we hear people say, the Lord told me, right? Um, you know, obviously I could go on forever on this, but don't say that. You know, I mean, or, or if, you, if you believe that the, the, there is a conviction, a deep conviction, say that. I feel convicted about. The Lord is convicting me about. And that's usually moral. That usually has a scriptural backbone to it, right? You know, I, I, I've, I've poorly treated this person over here, and the Lord has convicted me about that. But there's plenty of scripture that tells you that you have warrant to say, I, I feel bad about that, and, and maybe need to make amends or something. Um, but saying the Lord spoke to me is essentially the exact same thing Hananiah is doing here. And Jeremiah's response is the perfect one. It, it actually kind of starts a little bit of a brouhaha, but, <laughs> but it's the perfect response. It's, look, hey, we'll see. If after a time your word comes true, then we know that the Lord actually did speak to you. If not, then we know that you're a liar, and he didn't send you, and you're a false prophet. Um, if the death penalty was still around for false prophecy, maybe we would not say that as much. I'm not arguing that it should be. I'm just saying that <laughs> that's, that's, that's probably the reality. Um, so again, it's good, it's good to be convicted, especially when you read. It's good to be stirred, convicted, uh, you know, thoughtful about your own sin and, and, and things like that, or, or perhaps ways that, you, that have, not, have been less than helpful that you have thought in the past. Those are good things. But to say the Lord is speaking to me takes on a much different connotation. That, that seems to give the impression to, to everyone around you that the Lord is actually, uh, you know, authoritatively and inerrantly speaking to you and intends for you to convey that to somebody else so that they have to obey it, or they're in disobedience to the Lord, too. Um, and so just, we have to be very careful when we presume to speak on behalf of the Lord. It should be from Scripture. You know, speaking to somebody who is in sin and telling them, this is sinful, that there, there's plenty of warrant to do that because Scripture is speaking to that itself. But, but you saying, I have a word from the Lord, is, is a much different thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, it's, it's dangerous, too, when you have pastors who will stand up at the pulpit and say, I have a word from the Lord, or, uh, or when the people in the pew see the person behind the pulpit as the one who goes into his office and receives a divine word from the Lord and comes here. That, that's not what's happening. What's happening on Sunday morning is, well, what's happening during the week is I open up the Bible and study a passage. Nor normally, we're preaching from one passage. I study a passage. I try to understand what the Lord is saying in that passage. He has not just said it to me. He has said it to every single person who has opened that passage in the past. That passage means something, and my job is to figure out what it means. And then, as I figure out what that means, then I have to think about how that applies to our congregation locally. And so that's what's happening in, on Sunday morning, is I'm taking the inerrant, infallible Word of God, hopefully, if I'm doing my job right, 
the inerrant infallible word of God, explaining what that means, what he means to all people in all times and all places, and then applying that locally to our congregation with things I know and, and things you know uh, are going on, right? That, that's what we're doing. So it's, it's really dangerous when we see that person as, uh, I've, I've heard him, I've heard people say to me that that is, uh, uh, how, how have they put it, um, that the pastor is um, uh, God, God's, uh, what was this, the, the, the phrase comes from the Old Testament and it's about the king's. David and, and so on. That, that's a dangerous position to be put in. That's not exactly what's going on on Sunday morning. And that's not even the role of the pastorate. Which is why we're going to talk about that coming up. Uh, so good plug there. Thank you, Vicky. Couldn't have, I'll pay you later. I'll pay you later for it. Uh, <laughs> so, so point being, with all of these false prophets coming in, what does that tend to... Well, they don't keep their mouth shut. That tends to be the, the thing. And they tell people... And so what that does is it fills all of Judah with this sort of sense of false optimism that, uh, that, is, that they're going to get their king back, they're going to get their uh, possessions back, all things are going to be restored, people are coming preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace, and it fills them with false optimism. But what you also see in Jeremiah 28, 1-4 there that we read earlier is that they tend to view their king as Jeconiah or Jehoiakim, who is off in captivity, which, how does that make Zedekiah feel? Well, he's going to be lonely. Uh, he doesn't exactly feel great as the new king, of course, and, but it tells you the sentiment going around the nation at the time is that there's optimism, hey, I think this thing is going to be overturned. Surely God can't do this to us. Surely he's going to make things right and going to correct all these things and put his son, David, back on the throne. I mean, after all, didn't he make a promise? And what they don't realize is that he is in the midst of putting his son David on the throne, in the person of Jesus. He is in the midst of doing it, and their discipline is going to last for a long, long time, even after their release from captivity. So here is Zedekiah, who is the de facto king of whatever is left in, in Judah at, in 597 over not a, a whole uh, ton of people, um, more than what will be in 586, but not a whole lot. Especially not a, not a lot of the great rulers, leaders, and things like that in the, in the kingdom. But does that stop Zedekiah? No. He becomes evil just like his brothers, pays no attention uh, to either the admonishments of Jeremiah or the admonishments of Ezekiel. Um, he, uh, and, and he refuses to accept Babylon as the uh, um, suzerain. Uh, we've talked about this a while back. I left this word in, but uh, suzerain is the, the top dog. The vassal are the ones that pay tribute to the suzerain. So suzerain and vassal. Um, so he pushes back against Babylon, and what is a problem with that is two things. One, he is on the throne because he has promised Babylon that he will pay tribute to them. Problem number one. He's made a promise that he will pay tribute to Babylon. Pro problem number two is that Jeremiah is telling him, this is going to happen, this is the will of God, you need to just accept it. Bad things happen... And, and this judgment is coming about, 
as a result of the will of God, and when you refuse to accept that, that becomes a problem, right? Um, and so he's going to push back against both the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, on both fronts, and they're going to come after him for it. Uh, inside Judah, we see, so he's got, he's got a problem, because, come on, there we go. He's got a problem, because he's made this commitment to Babylon to be pro-Babylonian and pay, pay tribute to them. At the same time, inside of Judah, you've got a group of people that are going, wait a minute, did you not see what Babylon just did to us? They took our king. How could you make a promise like that? And so you're starting to see this sort of group rise up who is saying, who could we reach out to? What other nation is out there that might provide us help? Egypt. Right? They're close. They're pretty powerful. Why don't we go down to them? You remember, if you recall Jeremiah, if you've read through Jeremiah recently, he's got a lot to say about going to Egypt and seeking out help in Egypt. And yet, here they go, seeking out help in Egypt. So instead of just accepting the inevitable, that this is the judgment that God is bringing to the nation, no, let's instead push back, and let's see if we can get help from Egypt and maybe lean on them. And so he, he has this pressure coming within the party. He's got outside Babylon is, is breathing down his neck and is trying to make him a puppet. And so you've got both sides pushing it at, at him in both ways. So he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. There's no way that he can please everybody. And so uh, what is he, he going to do? Well, um, he tries to get an alliance going with Egypt. Well, uh, Zedekiah, this brings on the, the, the ire of Ezekiel. Uh, let's take a look. I think I lost my passages here. Hang on. Uh, let's look at Ezekiel 17, 11 to 18. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them uh, to Babylon, to, to him and to Babylon. And he took of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, that's Zedekiah, the chief men of the land he had taken away that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant, that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off the many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Well, that's a pretty fierce. But this part of the issue when we don't know what's happening in on the ground in Second Kings, and we read Ezekiel, we get to Ezekiel and we go, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. But if you understand what's happening right now, 
is you've got Zedekiah saying, yeah, yeah, we'll pay you tribute to Babylon, and making a, a pledge there, and then turning, it turns out the Lord does not take kindly when you break your word. Okay, that's one thing. But then, again, like Jeremiah is telling him, this is going to happen, and refusing to accept that this is God's judgment for his people is also a problem. And so Ezekiel says, look, Egypt's not going to help you, and Babylon's going to kill you, and they're going to kill you here. And that's exactly what happens. So, in 588, Nebuchadnezzar advances on, upon Jerusalem, and he commenced a siege that resulted in the fall of the city and the end of the Judean mar- monarchy in 586. So you've got 605 is the beginning of the, of the conquest, then 597, then 586, July of 586, finally Jerusalem falls. And I think it's worth reading. Look at 2 Kings 25, 1-7. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, and on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war war fled by night, by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's gardens. And And the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, were around the city, and they went in in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence to him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Um, so, as when the, when the city collapses, the, often the people that are leading tend to be the ones that escape while everybody else dies. So, Zedekiah and his men, some of his men escape through the city wall. They get out of Dodge, and they're caught in Jericho. And if, if you kind of think about it, if you've ever been to Israel, you've seen, obviously, Jerusalem is not that far from Jericho. It was up and then straight down to the Dead Sea, basically, it's sort of a direct shot into the plains of Jericho. You're going to pass through the plains of Jericho. And um, he's caught in Jericho. He's, blind, he's forced to watch his kids die first in front of him, and then he's blinded and taken off to Babylon. Uh, all the buildings in uh, Jerusalem are set afire, and they're all reduced to rubble and all of the remaining riches and treasures and things like that, anything that's left over is hauled off once again to Babylon. Um, And uh, the population, except for the very poorest and least influential, so if if in 597 a lot of the big leaders were taken off, in this last invasion, everybody else who's anybody, the middle class now was taken off, so basically all that's left is the poorest of the poor, and they're left there just so that the vineyards don't overrun the land. That's basically it. And among them is Jeremiah, who is left in, uh, in, captivity, or in, uh, in Jerusalem. He's not hauled off. Um, and then over the, uh, over the people that remained in the land, Nebuchadnezzar appointed Gedaliah the govern- to govern them. 
And he didn't last very long because the people realized at some point uh, anarchy can be established and this Gedaliah guy here is basically doing all the bidding of the Babylonians. And we don't really like the Babylonians because they hauled all of our ancestors off to captivity. And so they mount up a, an attack and they decide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kill Gedaliah, we're going to kill all the Babylonians, and then we're going to hightail it to Egypt so nobody can catch us. And that's essentially what they do, is they, they mount up an attack, they kill Gedaliah, and they run off into captivity. Now, what, what I think is interesting, and this is the point that I want to get to, is that the author of Second Chronicles makes a point as to how this all ends and the, way, the reason why it ends the way it ends. And he, he says this in Second uh, Chronicles 36, 15 to 16. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Um, so we, we've seen this time and again play out that the Lord is sending his prophets into the, the, to, to his land, to his people, whom he cares about. And he, he, they're telling them exactly what's going on. That they need to repent. That they need to fear the Lord. That they need to worship the Lord. That they cannot just worship God any way that they want to. That he has strictly governed the way that... And, and honestly, the people would probably be very happy to include Yahweh in the pantheon of other gods that they worship. So long as he doesn't actually have an impact on their life, so long as he doesn't step on my toes, so long as he kind of stays in his box, then he's fine. We can incorporate him into anything that we do. But then obviously that's not going to work because God is not one among many. He is one and only and does not like competition at all, will not have it. It's part of the commandments. And so the people continue to mock the prophets who are telling them that this is going to happen. And time and again, they put to death and stone the prophets that are sent to them, that the Lord is sending them for their, for their care. And ultimately, Jesus is going to take up this lament when he stands over the nation of Israel at, at, on the Mount of Olives, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in Matthew 23, city that killed the prophets, everyone that was sent to them. How many times would I have gathered you into my arms if it hadn't gathered your children? He wouldn't do it. So he punishes them. The, the irony that's, that's happening now, I think we can even draw direct parallels. I don't do this too much, but direct parallels to things that are happening even inside the church now. I would, I, somebody sent to me today, and I shouldn't have done it because it just, I shouldn't have watched it because it just made me mad. <laughs> um, virtual reality church, you seen this? Virtual reality church. VR... I'm not talking about streaming over the internet. That's bad enough. You know my feelings on that. I'm talking about virtual reality church. Like, an a you're an avatar. You put on gog goggles and hand things, and you control your avatar walking into church, and you have a conversation with another avatar standing right across from you. And you hear the guy's real voice behind the avatar, but it might be Winnie the Pooh standing there talking to you. And you think I'm kidding. I'm not. Actually, SpongeBob SquarePants 
standing right across from you. I'm not kidding. So it shows this video of this person who is virtually baptized. They stand in a virtual pool of water, and the virtual pastor asks this person to virtually kneel. And the little avatar goes like this underneath the water. And the virtual pastor says with his very real voice virtually through his virtual avatar, you're now being surrounded by, and it was a lot of like hocus pocus, you're now being surrounded by the presence of God and so on and so forth, and, and I baptize you. And then he says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the person rises out of the water. Standing on the edge of the baptistry, I'm not kidding, is Tigger and SpongeBob SquarePants and a banana. Three other avatars that are there witnessing this virtual baptism. But do you see what's happening here? Here is a person standing in a water posing as a pastor saying, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I baptize you, when that person is not baptized in any way, comes up out of the water and is assured in some capacity of salvation, when they have not done any, there is, there is nothing being done here. Being assured that they have been baptized and are following Jesus, when there's nothing being done here, they're preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they're telling everyone, you can, look, you can be fine. You go to church in your pajamas as SpongeBob SquarePants, and that's okay. And it's madness. Church is incarnational, or it's nothing. It is in person, or it's part of the reason why we got, why, we don't do the stream thing. I, I don't want people sitting at home. You're either here or you're not, right? The Lord commands us to gather together, and believe it or not, when you're here in person, you're actually doing something for the person sitting next to you. Your role here as a human being, as a Christian, in singing the words of the song, in praying prayers that we pray, in reading the scriptures aloud and being there to receive the scriptures being taught to you. Your role there is not just for you. It's also for the person sitting next to you. And that person is being edified and corrected and sometimes being encouraged when you sing it as well and their family member just died. When they're struggling to be there and you're singing it as well, loud and proud. Perhaps they even know some things that you've gone through. And yet you can stand there singing it as well. Then so can they. But it's, it's a huge problem we've got, this, we've got going on now when we, people are telling you, hey, this is church. Anything and everything that we can do to reach, short of sin, that's, that's the phrase that they use. Anything short of sin that we can do to reach, we'll do it. The problem is the way that you define sin doesn't include the way we worship. And yet throughout the entire Bible, it always includes the way you worship. And a lot of times, most exclusively, it includes the way you worship. The way God demands you come to Him a certain way. 
And it will only be done this way. We've chosen to rewrite the rules in some, to some extent. So I wonder why it is then that we find so many in the church ensnared in just weakness, lack of faith. I find it pretty common amongst our people that we don't know how to read the Bible. Take passages of Scripture that have given meanings that they've never meant before. You don't think maybe the two are probably linked together? Of course they are. Well, what happens then when you have a nation of people who are going to church, most of them not Christian, many of them not Christian, and yet, hearing from the pastor at the pulpit, everything's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Well, that, there's some truth in that. We're all sinners. Yes, that's true. But if you think it's okay, come in and worship and never be in the midst of worship confronted by your sin, that's not okay. I want to remind you what Paul says. Romans 1, 18-32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give Him thanks. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, they're full of envy, stri murder, strife, deceit, mal maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not do them, but give, do not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You understand, Paul's saying this in a New Testament era. God still has to be obeyed. His word still matters. Wrath is still in the dictionary. Questions? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just as Judah 
has plenty, not all who descended from Abraham are Abraham's offspring, right? Paul tells us this. This is true in, in the Old Testament. Not all who descend from Abraham, which is all those Jews that are hauled up into captivity, is the, the northern kingdom as well, are Abraham's offspring. What he means by that is, just because they were called Jew doesn't mean they believe in God and are his children or his offspring. So, the same is true in the church. Not everyone who calls themselves Christian and comes to church on Sunday is a Christian. You understand? You know, they're known by their fruit. I think it's, we're in a really hard spot, the church, broadly speaking. I, I bet I have conversations three or four a week with pastors that I know, other friends that are in churches, had one today, two actually today, with two different people. Um, just about people in their churches that, that they're, they, they were, grew up with, that they're going to church with all the time, and they just disappear. Call him, contact him. Where are you? Why are you not here anymore? And they're just gone. But if you had asked that person three years ago, was that person a Christian? Oh, Joe Bob, yeah, he's a Christian. Of course he is. He's there. He's a Sunday school teacher. He's a deacon. He's a fill in the blank. He does this, that, and the other. And man, I know him. He's good. He's, he's a solid believer. Well, where is he now? I don't know. He's probably not a Christian. They're tested. We're tested. Time proves it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yes, yes. Yeah, look, I, I think that's exactly a good, a good message to end on tonight is to remember the words of Jeremiah telling the exiles in Babylon, you're going to be there for a while. Settle down. Pray for the prosperity of the, of the place around you. That's exactly where Christians find themselves today. Whether or not the neighbor next to you has fallen away or whether they, they decided not to follow Jesus after a while or whatever, those are lamentable, they're sad, they, they deserve our mourning and our tears and our prayers, but the point to us is the same as the church, is we're in the midst of exile. This is, you are in Babylon. You're not in Jerusalem. You're in Babylon, and we should do what's best for the community around us 
in the name of Jesus. Pray for its prosperity and its success and work to that end. But understand that our home is also not here, right, at the same time. So we put our heads down, we go to work. Every Sunday we come in here. Uh, the goal of our meeting together is to study the Word together, to be encouraged by it, to be convicted by it, driven to prayer and confession of sin, uh, celebration of the righteousness we have only in Christ, and honestly, to leave here joyful in the fact that the fact that I woke up a Christian today is a miracle, and it's provision of the Holy Spirit that did that. And so, as long as it is called today, I can celebrate what the Lord has done in my life, I can look forward to what He will be doing in the future, and in the midst of all of that, I can do what I know He's called me to do. That's where we're at, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether it's in Babylon or in Jerusalem. Let's, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, and, and I thank you for an opportunity to, to study your word, and I, I pray for all of us as a church body that we would commit um, not, not only to living lives of holiness, but to coming to your word honestly, to letting it convict us, to see that w when, it bring, when Paul brings up these things in Romans, we're guilty of all those things. I'm guilty of all of those things. To one degree or another, every single one of us can look at things on those lists and go, oh man, those, those are sins that I've committed. And every single one of them are evidence that we still need Jesus. And if we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. That we're right there with all of the exiles. We're right there with Romans 1, 18 to 32. If not for Jesus, He is our righteousness. We have no righteousness of our own, but He has provided it for us, and we are grateful for that, because if not, we, we are exiled and dead, along with all of the Jews hauled off into captivity. So we, we're grateful. It, it, it hopefully will put us into a humble position, knowing that were it not for Jesus, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. And so we pray for that spirit to go before us and to be in us, through us. That we wouldn't look down on other people who are in those situations, but we would reach down to them with the words of, of life that also has pulled us up. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.